Hey guys, this is Colin Zhu, aka The Chef Doc, and thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to my podcast. On my podcast, we talk about eating and cooking and living from a whole food, plant-based approach. And between my patients, clients, and my audience listeners, I get a lot of questions of, hey doc, how do I get started on how to set up a kitchen? Or what should I buy? What should I make? Is there something beyond a salad, broccoli, and a smoothie? I know in our fast-paced life and during a pandemic, it is much more challenging to be able to teach yourself and learning how to cook. And so I partner up with Listenable, who is a leader in audio educational courses that are bite-sized. And I went ahead and created a course on how to get started on a whole foods plant-based lifestyle. And in this course, I put in my best tips, tools, and tricks on everything I've learned on how to get someone started to eating more plants, getting healthier for you and your family. I talk about how to set up your kitchen from the pantry to the fridge, the freezer, to how to navigate the supermarket, to what kind of utensils and appliances one needs to have, to what do we need to make, how to meal prep, what kind of cooking techniques there are, and what exactly is whole foods plant-based. And I'm able to make this course over 10 lessons. Each of those lessons are less than 10 minutes long. And you'll be able to finish this in an hour. You could even do it while commuting, exercising, or even walking your dog. And in addition, you can choose from over 3,000 plus original audio lessons created by well-loved experts. Just use the coupon code ColinZhu, C-O-L-I-N-Z-H-U, on Listenable.io, and you'll be able to get 30% off a year of Listenable. So definitely check that out in the show notes, and check out the course on how to get started on a whole foods plant-based lifestyle. And I'll see you there. Thanks for listening, and now back to Thrive Bites. Hey guys, welcome to Thrive Bites, the official podcast of Dr. Colin Zhu, aka The Chef Doc. On every episode, I talk with health and wellness experts from all over the world, such as doctors, chefs, dietitians, coaches, and many more. And I sit down with them and have casual conversations about plant-based lifestyle, how to elevate our emotional resilience, and what it really means to thrive. And I bring all of this to you. So let's get to this week's episode. Okay, guys. Well, welcome to another episode of Thrivebytes. I'm your host, Colin Zhu, and thank you for coming on. I have a wonderful, wonderful guest. This is Dr. Vania Manipod. Say hi to everyone, Vania. Hi, everybody. So thankful to be on here with you, Colin. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time out from your busy day. And, you know, we're just really, really, really happy that you're here. Uh, for those of you who do not know who Dr. Manipod is, she is uh, double boarded in neurology and psychiatry and practices general psychiatry in Southern California. She has a very holistic approach to, to psychiatry, incorporating psychotherapeutic techniques, diet and lifestyle, in addition to managing medications. And she has and utilizes many, many schools of thought to her approach, and that makes her very, very special and unique. So I'm so glad. Thank you so much for hopping onto the call with us. Yeah, of course. Of course, Doc. 
<laughs> awesome. So I love to start off by asking, tell me your story. Um, I love hearing um, our experts and guests and really talking about their stories from A to B. And it's really about the centerpiece of why we do what we do, really talking about our origins and you know, take us through A and B, share us with us uh, with that. And what is what has inspired you to go into general psychiatry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, interesting. Um, I I guess starting a little bit about myself, um, Filipino-American. I come from a very huge family. I'm the oldest of 33 grandchildren, and that's just on my mom's side. Um, so family is like a huge, important part of who I am and what I do, but also being the oldest, I kind of felt the need to be an example and be a leader, especially for my cousins, um, being the oldest, I felt like, okay, I have to set an example and do good. So, you know, I didn't really always want to become a physician though, being Asian, that's kind of the expectation. Mm-hmm. I thought that for a really long time, but um, what inspired me to go into medicine was when my grandfather passed away. He passed away from cancer, and um, he was the one who really motivated me to become a physician. Mm-hmm. But even he was also, in a sense, inspiring me to become one. But I was also the pressure. And then when he passed away, and you know that that feeling of obligation was gone. I still real I. I realized like, you know, I don't have the pressure to become one anymore, but I actually do want to become one. So it's kind of like, I think something that a lot of um, Asian Americans go through is reconciling the pressure to be go into the medical field. But if you actually really truly passionately want to go into it for yourself. So, you know, going into medicine is something uh, I felt was my purpose, but going into psychiatry, that kind of came about I mentioned my family, you know, as a kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a motivation for me to go into psychiatry because being the oldest, I also wanted to go into a specialty where I felt like I could make the most impact and kind of lead, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. And psychiatry was one where I felt like I could be a leader. I just felt like there's a, there were a lot of things about psychiatry that, um, you know, I really enjoyed and I really love, but there were a lot of things about the way psychiatry is practiced these days that I didn't like, which was, you know, kind of, and I'm sure you can relate to this, you know, you're pretty integrative and your focus is on lifestyle medicine, but, um, it was a focus on medications and only pretty much. And that's the direction of psychiatry right now. And, or has been, and I didn't agree with that. And I wanted to be able to kind of inspire future psychiatrists, and also maybe my colleagues to look at it more holistically, look at the whole person, recognize that in order to have an impact on our patients um, with mental health struggles, we can't just give them medications. We have to look at them as a whole. So that's kind of why I went to psychiatry and then also decided to, um, you know, to go into social media, which maybe I'll talk about more, probably talk Mm -hmm. about more, you know, with questions later, but yeah, I decided to go into social media and make an impact there because that's how I felt I could meet, reach a wider audience, yeah. such as being on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's awesome. I mean, you and I, we actually pseudo met uh, maybe two, three years ago. We were just talking about this before the session, um, you know, in at a national conference expo, and 
you know, you went first before I did, and mm-hmm. uh, you were talking about how to present uh, via social media. And um, I think I did a culinary medicine demonstration, and it was yeah, just literally did. in the middle of the floor. And uh, yeah, it was um, it was good because you know you have a lot of audience members that gravitate towards it, and you have a lot of you know, medical students, residents, you know, just wanting to get fresh perspectives. And um, I think mm-hmm. it was that same, you no, know, maybe it was a different year where there was also another DO, we're also DOs as well, uh, mm-hmm. where uh, there was a physician that was using dance as a form of therapy and be able to motivate her pa- uh, his patients and things like that. Um, his name escapes me right now, but... Um, That's so cool, yeah. I missed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, awesome. I mean, as a Asian, are you a first generation Asian American? Well, my my parents came here because my dad was joined the military. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I was born in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. yeah. So, but your were your parents immigrated, or were they born in America too? Uh, they were born in the Philippines. Okay, so you're first yeah. yeah. So I'm similar. I mean, like, you know, Chinese um, coming to America, same, very similar stories and tapestries where, you know, you just want to give better opportunities. And uh, in a way, they're kind of, they're always grooming you to seek higher education and to have that kind of, um, uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, position and career. And it was just funny because I just saw a recent uh, Netflix on uh, with Ronnie Chang. I don't know if you saw that. Oh my gosh, uh, I love him. Sorry, I just had to yeah. say that. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> yeah, I love him love too. Him. But it's so accurate because he says that um, he says that one of the the top reasons why Asian Americans' parents or or immigrant parents want their children to, you know, either be a lawyer, engineer, or, you know, even a doctor is really just to make money and for status. It's, and he just jokingly mm-hmm. talks about how helping people is actually last on the list. So <laughs> yeah, and I, just hilarious. Stop, I just couldn't stop laughing, but wow, 30 plus siblings. So I can, I can definitely see the, I can definitely see, put myself in your shoes because I'm the eldest, but uh, not huh. really you know, so many, um, you know, different siblings and uh, extended family members. And I'm sure it was very challenging for you to kind of come up through the, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of childhood. Well, it felt like, um, I I don't know, it's because I don't know life any other way. It did feel like there was a lot more pressure on me. But, you know, like after analyzing it, uh, you know, part of what I talk about on social media is I'm open about being in therapy, Mm -hmm. which I think everybody should be in. It's amazing. Um, part of like my therapy was also processing some of that pressure that I had and to be the, being the oldest and feeling like I have to do perfectly and do right. And, um, I, I, I think it was challenging at times, but at the same time it's made shaped who I am. And I don't think I would be considered a leader in the mental health or psychiatric field unless I had that upbringing. So yeah. Right, right, right. And it and it is, um, I don't know for you, but, you know, psychiatry is a very atypical field for um, uh, Asian doctors to be in. I don't, I, I haven't True. come across that many Asian psychiatrists. So I think it's a very, I, I love, I mean, I love, I mean, I graduated my bachelor's in psychology and, uh-uh. um, and I, uh, I love it. So I think it's something that uh, 
we all need to incorporate one shape or other. But I am curious because you did highlight the fact that, you know, modern psychiatry, uh, psychiatry, not necessarily practiced by all, but it, it it's really emphasized more on the medication, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the pharmacology, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you, can you kind of highlight when that shift actually happened? Because, you know, when did we go from the psychiatrist who used to, you know, from the back in the day where, you know, we had the, the infamous, you know, chair, you know, when mm-hmm. people lie down and talk about it and we psychoanalyze them to, you know, let me just, look, you know, look, maybe not even look at you, hold out my prescription pad and within right. five to seven minutes, write you something like when did that shift happen? Right. And that's interesting. I don't know exactly when it happened, but I do know, you know, even in my residency training, my program director, um, what, what I really, really liked about where I trained that was um, my program director at the time the psychoanalyst. So that is the very kind of traditional kind of Freudian kind of, you know, train like where people are on the couch and you analyze their thoughts and that type of thing. But he's a psychiatrist, but that's how psychiatry was taught and emphasized. You were required to go through that extensive therapy, psychotherapy training in his time. Um, I don't know how old he is, but um, so a standard. You have this extensive training in medication management, but probably equally so um, psychotherapy. And the shift happened. Gosh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna refrain when it comes to discussing insurance companies, as Mm. I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the shift has happened because insurance companies don't want they don't make as much money (laughs) from psychiatrists. Uh, doing talk therapy, (laughs) doing talk therapy for like an hour. They make money from visits. The more patients you see, the more money they make. So there has been this shift. It's not really known, right, by the public because they think. I mean, I'm just speaking in generalities, but the public generally thinks that psychiatrists just want to just make money. They think that maybe psychiatrists should want to make money, see as many patients as possible. That we have to do that is because insurance. Maybe if we see a patient for thirty minutes, in general, insurance will only reimburse us for like a five-minute visit. So, in order to get decently adequate compensation, you have to see more patients, and that's really impacted the way psychiatry is practiced. Mm-hmm. Because then we can't spend as much time with our patients as we should. We can't spend as much time getting to know why are they sad. Or tell me about your story and your background. We don't have as much time to, to focus on that, even though that is something that I try and do even before when I would have patients that I would see for just 20 minutes. I would try and do 19 minutes, you know, talking about their life and then one minute medication management because I, I don't want psychiatry to be that way. You know, it's mm. like I'm fighting up against the system, but it really has changed as a result of. Um, insurance companies, <laughs> and uh, you know, I I don't like talking about it, but it's <laughs> it's something important to emphasize and highlight. You know, especially for our general general audience that are listening, is you know, it, it's uh, you know, not yes. I mean, I hate for money to be the central piece of everything, but that's our mm-hmm. current infrastructure, 
And um, mm-hmm. there are better ways of doing it. There are different models being implemented. Um, and, you know, currently right now, you know, we have our psychologists, we have behavioral health therapists, we have, you know, social workers, you know, doing that portion of the therapy, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, for me, I'm, 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 for me, I'm like, you know, the more the merrier, you know, and I'm not as, you know, let me keep every, all the patients to myself and do everything myself. To me, it's like, I always have believed in a team approach. And as long as we're communicating well with each other, then why not help the patient together. Um, mm-hmm. But it is sad to see that shift. And um, I don't know if psychiatrists, you know, like you said before, but, you know, in terms of, um, uh, I guess, just being an older sibling, it's like you you don't really know the difference, right? So it's, it, it, it's not right. like we, we're in that generation where you grandfathered into the insurance, uh, you know, shift, a paradigm shift where, okay, you know, you're going to be doing more medication you know, mm-hmm. management um, and whatnot versus, you know, let's talk less, you know, we didn't, and it's, uh, it's, it's the same in family practice. And that's what I practice and where, you know, you're not making money from going over someone's diet and lifestyle right. recommendations. And, you know, not only that, we're not giving the time, you know, that's right. not the current infrastructure that we work under. So yeah. And are you un, are you doing a private practice or are you part of a good practice group practice or how how are you? Oh yeah. Um well right now I I'm an independent contractor um mm-hmm. for a practice, a private practice. So I do outpatient psychiatry and um what was I going to say? Um I chose that um because I just felt it also gave me more flexibility, I guess, in my schedule. I was, I I experienced burnout from my first job out of residency, which is something I talk a lot about in my, um, you know, in my work in the media. But, um, currently I found that the best practice that works for me is having flexibility in my schedule. So I see patients three days a week, but the rest of the time I do other things I enjoy also related to mental health. But, um, I, I feel like having that balance ultimately makes me a better psychiatrist because I feel kind of happier and more fulfilled and being able to incorporate different interests into my practice as a whole. Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey guys, this is Dr. Colin Zhu, a.k.a. The Chef Doc. I just want to take a few moments of your time to talk to you about something. Something that I feel needs to give reflection and pause for. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me, I've been on the self-work journey for a decade now. And I remember in my personal experiences... Uh, through my doctor's journeys and also from traveling the world, I was always searching for the next step or thinking that happiness was a destination. However, it's not. What I found instead was that life was a process and learning about life was also a process and a practice and that the state of happiness and the state of joy and contentment was also a practice For those of you who don't know, since I don't share that much on my podcast, is that I actually battle with anxiety, OCD, and in the past, episodes of depression. However, 
little by little, step by step, after seeking extra help, I've been able to achieve monumental things in my life that I've been eternally grateful for. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp is a sponsor of this podcast. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. A couple of reviews. This is by Rebecca Raymer. Becky has literally saved my life by truly understanding me. She has given me self-talk strategies and different thought pattern exercises that have made me stronger and a more aware person. I am so, so grateful to have found her. I've been to so many different therapists and none have helped me like Becky has. This is another review for Adam Johnson. I've had counselors before, both on BetterHelp and in person through work. And Adam, by far, is the best counselor I've ever talked with. I feel like he actually listens to and what is going on. He asks questions to help you navigate your thoughts. And you can tell that he is listening and wants you to help you. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash the chef doc. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1.4 million people taking charge of their mental state with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Thrive Bite listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash the chef doc. T-H-E-C-H-E-F-D-O-C. Thank you for listening, guys, and back to the episode. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, yeah. No, I I would agree with you and I do very similarly as well. I um you know for when I started my career, I went into traveling uh, medicine or or you know oh, local cool. and mm-hmm. like you I was able to control my schedule and be flexible. So um and I think self-care is important and on this podcast we talk loads and loads about general wellness and physician mm-hmm. wellness and burnout. And those are important topics to highlight, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I think as time goes, it's being, um, it's, it's being highlighted and emphasized even more, um, especially during the year, you know, during the pandemic uh, of this year, uh, we could see how these things are highlighted and where things aren't really being addressed and coming up to the forefront um, because, you know, we're needed more than ever, but, like you said, if we don't take care of ourselves, it's kind of hard to be able to take care of others effectively and well, Mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah, exactly. And just, you know, something to be mindful of is a lot of the healthcare professionals being exposed to a lot of things that are, have been pretty, you know, traumatic in treating COVID patients. Um, As things slow down, they always talk about that's the second wave pandemic is dealing with the mental health ramifications of it all. 
So, um, yeah, which is exactly why self-care and allowing oneself to process what happened because, you know, like right now, I don't think they have much time to process what's going on, the many lives that are being lost. And they feel like maybe there's no time to even think about it because they need to save lives. So it's definitely something that needs to be emphasized, especially as things start to slow down with the pandemic. I mean, we're not there yet, but eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, just to put in perspective, the time of this recording is in June, um, you know, will be different from its release date. But yeah, yeah we don't really have mm -hmm. a handle of, you know, what you know, on the first wave, you know, let alone, you know, just the thought of the second wave coming through is uh, very, very, um, yeah, I'm uh, mm -hmm. very, very uh, concerned. So yeah. So let's let's get into the next question is sure. you know when you when you have thought about going more of a like a holistic approach why do you think what inspired you to be more holistic in terms of psychiatry and why did you feel that was important for you to do mm -hmm. Well you know what's interesting is being a DO such as like yourself um even though we learn this holistic approach to care, which is very important in our the osteopathic philosophy, you know, incorporating mind, body, and spirit, I didn't actually know how that would impact me later in my practice because I kind of went through medical school just like, okay, it's like I knew we had to learn about the osteopathic philosophy, but I didn't really learn the osteopathic philosophy, I guess you would say, because you're so what? focused on. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm huge advocate of being a DO right now, but you know, when you're in med school, you don't really have time to process like, well, how is this going to relate in my future practice? You're not really uh -huh. sure. You're just trying to pass a test. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't until later as I was practicing when my patients were telling me, you know, you're the first psychiatrist who actually asked me about those types of things about, you know, like being very thorough about their medical history, which, you know, is something we should learn in training. But, you know, as time has gone by, I feel like it oftentimes um, important components of their mental health is, is missed. But what we learned in training was you have to address every system. If, like, you know, their cardiac, their heart condition, if, you know, what's going on, like, in their with their health, nutrition, spirituality, all that stuff is things that we learn, but I didn't actually recognize how much it would impact me in my practice mm -hmm. until later on. So, you know, like even just in general, I think as a medical student going through psychiatry and all the rotations we have to do in internal medicine and surgery and all that stuff. I, I was always interested in various aspects of someone's life. Like, yeah, I remember in surgery rotation where, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's quick. You don't really get to know a patient. I remember one of my, um, I think my, my, one of the, uh, my attendings, one of the surgeons, he was like, why are you spending so much time? Like, you need to be doing this, you need to do that. Like, but I think it's important. Like, I was like, I want to know <laughs> their life. Okay. Yeah, I was like, I just want to know their life. Like, how did I, they, you know, okay. how are they coping and all that? Yeah, I know you want a comfortable <laughs> open. It's great. But, you know, I actually want to not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I would say our training uh, as DOs has influenced me, but also just, just common sense knowing that if someone complains of depression, it's not just depression. Here's your antidepressant. It's okay. Why are they depressed? What are they going through right now? Um, is there foods that they're eating that's making it worse? It's like, it's everything. And that's what psychiatry is. It's everything. So 
Yeah, <laughs> I could go yeah. on about that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm uh, I'm very similar. So in terms of how I relate to holistic approaches, is you know, and I've said this many times in previous episodes, is you know, I've been you know raised by my mother, who is a Chinese medical doctor, and she's been practicing Chinese medicine, acupuncture for like four decades, and having worked in and out of her practice over time, she really taught me you know, the person behind the symptoms and the person behind the conditions. And she really taught me what compassionate care was. She taught mm. me about empathy. Um, and Amazing. Yeah, thank you. And I, over time, I've followed my first integrative doctor, um, you know, was my first exposure to it. And then I got into like functional medicine, naturopathy, things like that. So my, and osteopathy was the main reason because of its principles and philosophy really drew me in. So I actually only applied to DO schools, um, oh, cool. osteopathic schools because of that, because I really resonated with it. So my question to you is, you know, during your training, did you feel like you had a lot of, um, they probably maybe didn't teach you different types of other holistic um, modalities or approaches, but mm. did they kind of brush over it or talk about it um, and how that later impacted you? Or did, you know, as you started going into psychiatry and practicing, patients came to you and said, oh, you know, I've been trying this or mm -hmm. I've been trying this type of alternative care. What do you think? And then mm -hmm. you thereby went into learning more and more and found that, huh, maybe I should incorporate it into my practice. Mm -hmm. Probably a combination of both, but I would say in my residency training, I was pretty fortunate, like I mentioned, and for any future psychiatrist, I highly recommend finding a program that emphasizes strong emphasis on psychotherapy training. But um, I had amazing supervisors who were psychotherapists, but also psychoanalysts. Um, some were therapists, some were psychiatrists, but they were, had extensive training in psychotherapy. And I would have to say just, you know, when you learn about psychotherapy, you learn that you have to learn various aspects um, of their life and um, to and really get to know them. So it was kind of very, just when I went out into my own practice, it was pretty intuitive that you have to understand that there's certain things in their culture that maybe they believe in that might be helpful um, or certain things like just in general in their background. So, you know, for some people, uh, like I have, I had some patients rec like tell me that, you know, this, this type of treatment in their, you know, where they're from and in Asia or, you know, like mm -hmm. the Middle East or something is something that they've heard helped. And, you know, do, what do I think about that? So it did force me to research it because I wasn't just going to say, no, like I haven't been taught about that or, or right now, you know, medications is the only option. I, I had to I had to research it because we aren't really taught those things. Um, we're not taught about nutrition. So I had to try and research all that on my own. And when it comes to acupuncture, you know, there's still a lot I have to learn, but I, I'm very open to alternative treatments, I guess you would say. They'll tell me about it. What do I think about it? And I'll say, you know, I need to read up on that more. But as long as there isn't any contraindications, like I'm not 
not against it, I guess you would say. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, you know, every every physician practices differently, and to me, <laughs> I think that's where the art of medicine comes through. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where you basically come up with your own style, you know, like you will practice psychiatry different than your predecessors or maybe your colleagues. Of course, there's always, always going to be similar similarities. And we always have what we call the standard of care within our specialties. And, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, we go about it differently because innately we're already individuals, you know, we're humans at the end of the day. And, you know, obviously with psychiatry, we're going a little bit further because we are talking about more of the mental, emotional aspect of our human health. Um, And so that's, you know, very, very important. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, for me, I'm a big advocate of uh, doing your research um, and, you know, I am and, and integratively, putting that into a medical approach. Um, Mm -hmm. But I would also say for our general public too is, and I think um, the last statistics that I read was two thirds of patients that come to you have already sought out a alternative form of treatment before they came to their, before they went to their primary care. And Hmm. to me, that just shows how much it's very prevalent and how much they've already done something else. And for maybe, you know, mainstream medicine hasn't worked for them or they're Hmm. trying to find a different approach to ail um, conditions there, you know, to um, be able to improve their overall health. So I think um, for our healthcare uh, practitioners that are listening in is, you know, it wouldn't hurt to kind of learn, continue to learn about other modalities and see why patients are seeking other, other approaches for their health. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's important as well. It's an interesting um, statistic. I've never, I hadn't heard of that, but that, but that, that should, that should encourage us to, um, cause then maybe it's something they tried and we don't even know what that is. So it's like, we need to yeah, be versed in yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was more, it was applied that to this uh, statistic was more applied for primary care. So mm-hmm, okay. I'm not sure about psychiatry, but okay. <clears throat> probably presume that, you know, they've thought about something else or they tried at something else. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's important to make sure you were all encompassing. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, let's talk about your work in social media and, uh, your moniker or avatar is Freud in fashion. That is your brand. And uh, you're pretty, pretty well-known and popular. And uh, my question to you is, why did you decide to use social media, blogging, Mm -hmm. and the different avenues that come with social media to be able to take your practice to a different level? You know, what was the impetus from it? And what have you noticed over time from it? Yeah. Well, I actually started blogging 10, oh my gosh, is it 10 years? 10 years ago. It's 2000, it was 2010. I was in residency. I had moved away because I'm from Southern California. Um, but I moved away for the first time, no friends, no family, which a lot of us end up doing in our training. But for me, it was really isolating. And I thought, I don't, I, I'm so, I'm more of an extrovert side and I, I need connection. And um, I started blogging. I don't know how, or oh, I think I found, found some fashion bloggers that I like. I was like, that's really cool. Like they're able to reach people and, uh, that way. So that's kind of why my name was Freud in fashion. 
because I thought, well, how do I combine psychiatry and fashion? Because I thought, ooh, like I'm into fashion. That was back then. I am not into fashion now. (laughs) (laughs) Just just making note of that. Um, But back then I was. And I thought, okay, this is a cool way to make maybe psychiatry sound cool because who talks about psychiatry, really? And nobody was really blogging at that time. Not that many people, no physicians, I don't believe. Um, not that many people in the medical field. So that was actually my way of coping with feeling isolated and kind of depressed at that time. Um, and it gave me an outlet. But then I started blogging about the difficulties and hardships of being in residency, which is also something that you wouldn't hear about. Mm-hmm. from physicians in training. So I started talking about that and eventually evolved to me talking about, you know, having open open dialogue about it's hard going through training um, and kind of humanizing just the experience we go through because often we're held on a pedestal, right? We don't really consider the hardships as much, at least back then, of going into training. So to be a doctor. So Uh, Then it eventually evolved to me talking about psychotherapy tips because there was pretty extensive psychotherapy training at that time. Got to a point eventually, then, you know, I started talking about my experiences and talking about becoming a burned out physician. And I would have to say that's when things started getting more attention. Like that's when the American Osteopathic Association, our, our medical organization, read my work. I was really ashamed, actually, of my first post that I did talking about burnout, but I knew it had to be, it had to be said because, um, you don't, you wouldn't hear so much about burned out physicians who were depressed from, um, their profession at that time. But my blog post has, was widely shared and our medical organization read it and they actually supported my writing. And to me, that was very validating because again, it can feel like a very isolating experience. So from then on, I started getting asked by people who read my article to do speaking engagements, which is, you know, kind of where I met you um, and one of my various speaking engagements. So I've done talks all across the country on various topics, but it, it started with blogging, knowing I had a message that needed to be shared about mental health and breaking the stigma um, and then speaking engagements. And then I decided I would reach more people through Instagram, which, you know, I, I do the most, I spend the most time on um, sharing on there. And it just grew from there. So I've done a lot of writing for media, like journal, um, magazines, and I've done media like on TV. So it's actually been pretty cool just to see it grow and how many people actually care about my message, which is really what I'm passionate about. Like, Mm-hmm. So, and I think people can tell that mm-hmm. I'm passionate about talking about psychiatry and mental health. Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. Do you have, um, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't see this anywhere, but do you have, is there a book in the works? Have you written <laughs> one? Are you thinking about one? Oh gosh. You know, when I started blogging years ago, someone sent me a book, um, someone, someone that read my, my post, sent me a book called how to 
how to blog a book or something like how to write a book from a blog, something like that, how to turn your <laughs> blog into a book. And I've had that book and I keep thinking that's something I need to do. And that's what a lot of people tell me I should do. So, but I don't know. I haven't gotten to that point yet, but that would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so number one, um, going back a couple of steps, I definitely applaud you sharing and thank you for sharing that. And um I, w- I can only imagine being back in 2010, um, you know, starting blogging, you know, during a residency training for our general art, uh, uh, audience is probably a medical professional's toughest years, um, you know, no matter what specialty you are. And it's kind of, I think the best analogy I can uh, attribute it, uh, associated to is, you know, kind of like a frat you know, or sorority and almost similar to like a hazing process. Mm -hmm. Um, And traditionally that's, you don't really question it. You don't really, you know, speak out about it. You don't really, um, you know, before, before the 80 hour uh, residency, uh, residency, uh, uh, protected time of uh, clinical work, it used to be more than 100, 120 yeah. hours a week that you would work. And, right. and, and that would be the norm, you know? Um, and th- this is true. Um, probably worse for surgeons, surgical residents, um, or doctors in training. And, uh-huh. um, you know, during that time to be able to write an article and to really express how you felt um, and your thoughts of what you went through is huge. And, uh-huh. um, and during that and and that time versus now, because I think now medical organizations, um, I don't know about residencies, but I, I know for medical, uh, I know for work organizations that employees, doctors, they are, you know, especially in the news, you hear it all the time. They're very, very, very uh, strict. They're very, um, you know, very, very uh, um, have their eye, you know, on yeah. what you talk about in the social media because they don't want to. M- want you to misrepresent, you know, them. Um, and you know, during the time of COVID right now, I think the biggest news that I heard was, um, I think it was in Washington state where an ER doctor was fired because he was just talking about not having enough PPE or mask equipment, you know, when the pandemic hit and he got fired from his organization uh, for speaking out, and he blo- he he posted about it on Facebook, and it was just very eye opening and very sad because he was, I think, about three decades of practicing an e- as ER, and he was there for seventeen years, and so that's the power of social media, and it just depends on how you use it, and I think social media for physicians is a very relatively new space. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, now we have, you know, more, more Facebook groups and more coalitions for us coming together. Uh, but it is relatively new. So, and I'm glad that you are one of the early adopters to say like, Hey, you know, you know, you probably didn't foresee all this coming your way, but you're just like, you know, I just wanted to express myself, you know, I just yeah. wanted to share my experience. So, yeah. And I think that's like a lot of people message me, mental health professionals and medical professionals saying, you're so open. Like, aren't you afraid your patients are going to read your stuff? I'm like, my patients do read my stuff. I'm like, and I'm, I'm happy that they read my stuff. You know, I'll only put out there what I'm okay with them knowing about me. 
But for the most part, social media could be a really amazing tool in any profession because then people feel connected with you. Um, and it kind of just bridges the gap because I think oftentimes before our patients would think, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, perfect in some degree. We are held to a pedestal, but we're human and we have our struggles. And I feel like it's really helped um, them see like, okay, like they're, they're just like me. They go through yeah. experiences like me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like you said, it's to humanize uh, everything and it's super important. Yeah. Um, uh, so on the flip side to that, you know, from your perspective as a psychiatrist, how does social media come into play when you're dealing, um, when people who battle with depression, anxiety, like how does, how does the flip, how is the flipping of social media work against us? You know, like you, mm-hmm. you have a good handle of it and we're using social media as a tool, you know, whether it's for personal expression, for advocacy, for, or maybe just ranting, right. Or, or, or whatever. But sometimes we can allow social media to be used against us. And now we're in this time of age where the latter generations are being born into cyberbullying and, you know, hazing and, um, you know, all these different things, um, you know, in the context of social media. So from your perspective, like how has social media come to play with all this? Like how does that affect patients that you see? Yeah. And that's, it's actually interesting because right before COVID, I did several talks on the impact of social media on mental health saying be on social media less, you know, like kind of restrict the amount of social media you use. And then COVID the pandemic hits and then we're like, Oh, Darn, the only way we can connect with people is through social media, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it, it switched. It was all of a sudden, no social media, limit social media. Then the pandemic, it's like, oh no, yeah, be on social media, connect with people um, and stuff like that. So it was totally different. Uh, but it, we tried to view social media in a positive way with the pandemic to maintain connections. Cool. But so a lot of studies were done on teens to assess the impact of social media on mental health. And they've just, they found a connection to increased depression, increased anxiety, decreased self-esteem. Um, so even more, more studies obviously have to be done because it's, it's, it's not enough, I guess, to actually indicate causation. But that's kind of why it's important to have limits no matter what. Like, so even with the pandemic, even though a lot of people turn to social media as one of their outlets to be able to connect with people, we still have to maintain boundaries. And that's kind of one of the things that they found in these studies is that moderate use is okay, right? Like it's okay. Like, in life, everything in life, everything in moderation, <laughs> everything in moderation. How would, you, how would you how would you say moderate for social media? Like yeah, you say, you say alcohol, you know, one standard drink. <laughs> although there have been global studies to say that you know that that's actually not that those right. things are actually false. But how do you moderate? How would you moderate a uh, uh, social media? Yeah, and that's a tough one. So with what I've read, it's around three to four hours a day. And at first I was like, wait, that's kind of a lot, but you have to understand a lot of uh, people who grow up in this day and age, that's, that's the, their way of texting people, you know, it's through messenger uh, DMs. Mm-hmm. That's kind of their way. Whereas maybe, I mean, I don't know how old you are, Colin, but you know, like 
I like to talk on the phone um, yes, and too. yeah, and have personal, like actually interaction in person. But for them, that's their way of communicating. So it said three to four hours a day was okay, but anything more than that was excess. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because it's like, you can't go into a grocery and this is talking pre COVID where, you know, you can't go into a grocery store where at least for me, where you don't run into uh, a parent or a couple where they have their kid. And in order to them, in order to quell them from not, uh, you know, crying, they'll stick an iPad in their face, right? Yeah. So, so basically, you're already grooming them or conditioning them from the start. And, you know, I, I'm sure you have the studies for this, but more and more are being socially isolated. And I think a large part of that is because of our dependence, quote unquote, you know, on smartphones and screen times and social media, you know, that takes up a large part. And we don't do like for me, I was born in the early eighties. I don't know when you were <laughs> born, but I I knew I know what a landline is, right? <laughs> I know I I you know I never use a rotary phone, but I know what that is. You know, I think a lot of millennials don't know what that is either. Yeah. Um, but I had to memorize my best friend's phone number, ask his mom, <laughs> and be like, you know, are they here? You know, so yes. so, so I understand talking to a human being and. Um, you know, using texts and messenger and FaceTime, which is great for a pandemic, but, you know, we're going to go past this pandemic, you know, COVID is going to end eventually. So I guess from your perspective, you know, how would you, what would you recommend in terms of changing that message or changing that context or changing that, you know, how do we become less socially isolated, you know, Mm -hmm. and not depend on these devices, you know, and be able, because I, I I would, I would presume a lot of it is associated with our, you know, maybe, you know, increase increases uh, of depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So especially since it's, I think the focus is, should be on the, like the newer generation, like the ones who, and like kids um, where this is their only, what they know pretty much for how to communicate, at least for us, um, being in the older generation, we kind of know, like you said, we know the difference. We know the importance of connecting with people in person, but they don't necessarily. Mm-hmm. So a huge part of it comes down to us as the adults and the parents modeling this type of behavior when it comes to social media. So, you know, if you're a parent, but you're, and you know, I don't want to judge anybody for how they parent, but if you're a parent and you're on your phone all the time, your kids are going to see that. And they're going to think that that's okay. But if you set limits, say, okay, dinner time, family dinner, no phones at all. You're kind of teaching them like there is dedicated time where you're going to connect with family without your phone, without your smartphone. No digital interaction. It's just focusing on the here and now and being with your family. So it's a lot of it is really comes down to setting these limits. No phone. That's a big one. Also, some kids can go with their phone at night before they sleep, but that's going to affect their sleep. So uh, enforcing these types of limits is going to be important for them to recognize, okay, sleep is going to be important. I'm not going to have my phone because you never know what they're looking at, especially you don't, maybe kids and teens can pretty much access anything. So you have Mm -hmm. to set some kind of limits on that. So I think modeling and setting limits and also emphasizing the importance of spending time 
um, with your family or other people through um, in-person interactions and not digital interactions is extremely important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, in a world, uh, you know, currently in a pandemic, but, you know, there are more and more jobs where you can go remote. You don't have to be in the office. Yeah. So that means that you have less interaction with other human beings. And now you have more dependence if you're working at home that right. you're teleworking. You know, we have Zoom capabilities now. We have, you know, webinars and teleconferencing. And so pretty much a, a lot more dependence on devices. And I like what you're saying, um, what you said about uh, no phones, um, you know, for protected time. And that could be applicable for like, you know, family dinners or even for couples, um, you know, date night to not, oh, goodness, you know, yes. <laughs> to not, yeah, exactly. To not, you know, have phones during a conversation. And it's really, there's, there's just so much you gain from, you know, and you could speak about uh, verbal and nonverbal language, but, you know, there's a lot to be gained when you're conversing with someone across the table or, you know, maybe right next to you and to be able to use all your five senses to interact with that human being, because, yeah. you know, social, uh, the, yeah. uh, the devices are, okay. you know, just very one, you know, very one dimensional, very visual, very, you know, everything is the visual. So. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so we're going to, yeah, these are great uh, conversations and we can probably go on forever, but I would love <laughs> to kind of close out um, and ask, and this is one of my favorite, uh, favorite questions to ask is, how do you personally thrive? And what I mean by that is, you know, what really gets you up in the morning? Um, what lights your fire? What keeps you going? And it's really the essence of the podcast is about thriving. And, you know, how do we take our lives, you know, to a different level, take it higher than our day to day? So how do you personally thrive? That's the first question. And the second part to that is to be able to share three tips um, uh, to build a better foundation. No matter what you where you are in terms of mental health, um, how do we improve our mental health from a holistic point of view? Um, mm -hmm. I'll give you that. Right. So how I thrive, um, I and this is a process for everybody, but I truly wake up in the morning. You know, it's work is still work, but I wake up feeling that I have a the sense of purpose and that I'm doing what I'm passionate about and what I feel like I'm meant. To do, I mean, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person, and I truly feel like, like I try and find a sense of meaning in everything that I do. And with psychiatry, it's it, like I truly feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I guess I get I get comments from my patients saying that their life has improved because they know I care, and I get messages on social media from people who say, you know, keep doing what you're doing. It's making a difference, and, and I don't really. When I do things, I don't think, oh, I'm going to make a difference, you know, like that's, that's like my point of, that's not my point of doing it. I do it because like, I, I, I feel like, I do feel like it would help people. I don't know how many people it'll impact, but, but hearing from people that it is impactful gives me meaning, which, um, does make me feel like I want to keep going and doing this. Um, but, but, you know, like in order for me to thrive. I also have to take care of myself too. And, um, and I do that. So I, I make sure that I exercise and try and get a decent amount of sleep and I've started eating better so that I can, 
I hate it when I get tired and I, then I feel like I can't do anything. So I try and try and maintain my energy as much as possible. So I would have to say feeling like I have this sense of purpose with what I do. It is exhausting. Don't get me wrong. There are times when I don't want to do it, but I do because I actually truly enjoy it. And I know that it's help, helping people. So that's that. And then, so some simple actionable steps, three steps. Number one, a lot of us, and you hear it all the time. They talk about self-care. People talk about self-care and sometimes people look, think of it as a negative thing. Some people view it as positive, but all of us do need self-care. So an easy thing would be to just we schedule things that we need to do, right? Our appointments and everything. Schedule a self-care activity, even if it's just half an hour, even if it's just five minutes to sip your coffee without looking at your phone or your laptop, you know, just, just some me time. And that's something that I think a lot of people struggle with. That's why I emphasize, just schedule it in. <laughs> just like you would do any other priority because your self-care is a priority. Okay, so that's number one. Number two especially during this time um, with stressful, challenging times with the pandemic and especially with what's going on with the, uh, and you know, I don't know the time that this, this will be coming out, but with the Black Lives Matter movement right now, it, it's, it's important to, I guess, set boundaries, setting boundaries is an important thing to learn in life and knowing, knowing, I guess, your threshold for how much you can tolerate. So, how much news can you tolerate? Um, how how many hours do I have to allow being away from anything digital like TV or my phone or anything to ensure that I get a good night's rest? So you kind of, I want people to try and be more aware and insightful of how certain factors um, can impact their mental health in a good and a positive way. And that, that is a skill to be learned. Yeah, setting boundaries and knowing. And then number three, I would say, well, when you think about it, and it's something that we emphasize as medical professionals, but it's so true how important sleep is, how important exercise is, and how important our nutrition is. So I think if we can kind of even make a simple change, um, like no soda or something like give up soda, just something like that, that can really make a difference. And I guess, get the momentum going to focus on other aspects of uh, our mental health. Awesome. I thank you for sharing that. Um, so for those in the audience that are looking to reach out to you or to learn about you um, and to find out more of what you do, uh, where can they go? So you could go on my Instagram. It's Freud and Fashion. That's F-R-E-U-D-A-N-D Fashion. So Freud and Fashion. And also my blog is freudandfashion.com. And uh, again, thank you so much for jumping on. I think, um, you know, our audience members will greatly benefit from, I think we had a very, you know, comprehensive viewpoint of, you know, everything you're doing and, you know, just giving a little bit of insight of what psychiatry is and, uh, you know, and that, you know, there's someone out there that's doing something different. So thank you so much for sharing your viewpoints. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Really hope your audience benefits from it. 
<laughs> Thank yeah. you very much. Guys, this has been a, another episode of Thrive Bites. If you enjoyed this, please like, share, and follow. And if you feel that someone else might benefit from this, uh, please share it with your fellow human beings and friends and family and uh, you know your good fellow man. And uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, we will see you on the next one. Hey guys, that was another episode of Thrive Bites. If you like that episode, please subscribe and follow for new episodes. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts.